Welcome to Scanning Realities, or welcome back to Scanning Realities, if you caught episode one. The podcast where we provide a laser-focused insight into trends in the world of reality capture and the tools that can alleviate some of your pain points, along with the pain points of your customers. My name is Michael, and full disclosure, I work at Navis as a team lead. Each episode, I'll be joined by experts involved in the world of reality capture, whether they have hands-on experience or they're working in an adjacent field and training the next generation of surveyors and architects. We'll be exploring their challenges and the changes in the way that they work. Today's episode, episode two, is overcoming the BIM possible verification and best practices with our guest speakers, Stuart and Dr. Andreas. In today's episode, we're going to be exploring the topic of verification in the building and construction industry. How do you get reliable and transparent information? Today, we're going to be exploring that and looking at workflows in greater detail with Stuart Maggs, who's an architect based on his background and has lectured at multiple universities and now the CEO and co-founder at NASCA.ai. We're also joined by Dr. Andreas Wagner, who was a field surveyor in Germany and a research assistant at the Technical University of Munich and is now the managing director within a company inside the engineering, surveying and infrastructure space. Together, we hope to answer some of your burning questions around verification and explore what the future of this process might hold for the role in your business, whether this is involved in reality capture and verification, or whether you're on the receiving end of this type of project data. So let's get straight into it. So um, to kick off, Stuart, how would you explain to somebody maybe that you met at the bar, uh, but potentially somebody at university and um, what you do in uh, your company? So getting into the the bar mindset, I guess I would say what the company does is we automate the comparison of what you intended to build to what you've actually been building in reality. And we say, you intend to build something, you send out a lot of people onto your construction site to be able to build it. Sometimes people get a little bit more creative with what actually gets built in reality. And our job is to highlight and flag what's potentially not quite aligned to what you intended to build and also tell you what you've built and what you haven't built to be able to keep track of of progress and quality simultaneously. Great. And I guess, Stuart, as well, how did you go about starting this company and how did you first enter the industry? So I'm an architect by background. I've worked in the UK, the Netherlands, Italy, Spain, and on projects kind of all around the world. And I entered into the industry right at the moment of crisis when it went from having infinite chances to get a job to suddenly competing against people with like 20, 15 years of experience. So I I kind of had to give myself a little bit of a niche in the industry and I turned into the guy in the office that was trying to find, basically figure out how to build the things we designed in the office and get them into reality. And what I slowly kind of came to the conclusion of was that every project we worked on was the same and that Every project we worked on was different, but we were having the same coordination problems, the same rework issues, the same schedule problems, the same budget problems. And it gets a little bit boring to just continuously repeat the same conversations. So I think the company is is a mechanism or a vehicle to be able to make some of those changes in the industry by producing AI tools to solve some of those problems. Great. Thanks, Stuart. And Andreas, over to yourself. So if you could give us a brief explanation of what it is you do at the moment. 
I'm a classical engineering surveyor, so it means so in the construction engineer, um, we are mainly involved in construction, rebuilding, renovation of buildings or infrastructure. And what we do is we're creating a map for architects, planners or something like this. And so a map of the environment, um, of the existing structures as a base for this site. And in the past, this design was mostly made by 2D plans. Now it's more a 3D representation. And after the planning is done, we, we are transferring this design into the reality by staking out points, for example. And um, also this process includes monitoring of structures, verification of plan and build structures. Great. Okay. And I also have to ask the same question to you, Andreas. How did you personally get into the industry? It was in, in school. I saw a flyer of this um, study of surveying, so <laughs> I never heard before of it. And um, I was right excited of these um, studies and, and of this job. So you need a mathematical background. Um, you're working with state-of-the-art sensors and technologies. You're working outdoors, also in handling data indoors. So it's quite fascinating. And, and this fascination never left me. Nice. Yeah, I think um, we're probably all guilty of being a little bit fascinated by this space and joining to try and solve some problems. So maybe to zoom out, as some of our listeners uh, may not be particularly familiar with some of the terms that we might use or elements of the industry. So it'd be nice if both of you could maybe describe reality capture within the AEC industry and potentially how that's changed since you yourselves have been in the industry. So Andreas, I'd start with you. If you could just quickly tell us you know, what reality capture means for you in, in your business. So it's, I think it's, it's the main task. So as I said, in the survey, in um, the plan creation, we have to record what's, what's out there, what are the existing structures. And in the past, we have done this by um, taking single points, um, doing some discrete points um, were captured by a total station or are still captured by a total station. But it changed now that we capture everything with a laser scanner or a photogrammetric system, something like this. And we, we then look after in, indoors what information do we need um, and pick out all, all the details. So um, it moved a little bit from, from the outside. The time outside is limited now and, and we're doing more um, in the office and analyzing the data. And, in the future, we will use more automated system to automate it, get out the data what we want. Great, yeah, so the, the in a way, technology has enabled us to capture more data than ever before, but also in places where previously it was incredibly difficult to access. And, and it, it changed a little bit from taking single points to now we have aerial information about it, more dense information. For example, if you check if, if something is flat, enough in the past we had only every five meters a point something like this and now we have laser scans millions of points their information is, is much higher than before yeah so a much greater resolution than than ever before i guess Stuart, does a lot of that resonate with you and would there be something else you'd add on that definition of reality capture to be honest, I think Andreas did a pretty good job of, of defining it. We've moved from, like, we want to measure things in reality, 
maybe if we even go further back from uh, from turtle stations, like a tape measure, everyone has a tape measure on the project because you want to measure things. If you can't measure something, you can't manage it, you can't understand the space around you, you don't know what's going on. So reality capture is just a way of capturing inf- spatial information about your environment. And as Andrea said, it's moved on from single points of measurement, which is kind of limited in the understanding that you can have of your environment, to moving towards laser scanners. And I remember when I was in my, uh, even doing my master's, we had some laser scanners brought to the university and they were like wrapped in huge pelican cases and we weren't allowed to even touch them. We were barely allowed to even look at them. <laughs> um, and I think, that, I think they probably would have blinded us if we did. And it's moved on from that to the devices on the market becoming cheaper, easier to use, less friction. It doesn't have to be a highly skilled surveyor that knows exactly what button to press and they're very sensitive. So the price is going down, the ease of use is going down. And then what's maybe particularly interesting to us is that the speed of capture has also increased. So something that was done by a surveyor and would take days can now be accomplished in hours with, I have to say, solutions like the Navis VLX. So you can just wander around, capture that information. And then from our point of view as a company, that's super valuable because now we can start to get into the stage where we start to interpret those measurements to derive value and start thinking about the next steps on from from just capturing information. Yeah, great. Thanks, Stuart. And thanks for referencing Navis. We didn't pay you to say Navis, but thank thank you for uh, for saying Navis. And I think that that starts to move us on in a way to the broader topic. So the fact that Andreas, as you mentioned, were able to capture information of spaces that we couldn't capture spaces before, we're able to do it in a greater resolution. And Stuart, to your addition there, that we're now able to capture at lower cost, meaning that we can capture with a greater frequency the same site. And this is really the the crux in a way of construction verification and the fact that this new um, use case is opening up. So I guess another definition for our listeners, and maybe Stuart will start with you this time, is construction verification. Um, how do you define it? And could you help our audience maybe understand what construction verification is in, in greater detail? I think it would be interesting to start with the, the why are you doing that? What is the problem that we're trying to solve here? Um, so imagine we're sitting in the pub here. So we're having a conversation in the pub. Imagine you were building a $1.5 billion mega project big hospital or a a big entertainment facility. Uh, Maybe it's Spurs Stadium, which was over budget uh, and uh, over schedule and they didn't do very well. I'm an Arsenal fan, so I've got no problems (laughs) with that. But imagine you're building this huge complex structure and you now have millions of individual elements that are being installed in time and space. So it's, it's very complicated. So how do you actually validate what has been installed versus what you planned. And ultimately on a construction project, it's quite likely that maybe only five to 10% of the work is actually being validated against the plan, which kind of leads to the question of why that's kind of insane. You want to understand what's been built and what hasn't. Otherwise, if you can't measure it, how do you manage it? And how do you actually make good decisions on your project? If you're only looking at five, 10% of your project, the people that are making decisions are making them based on blurry, incomplete or late information. 
that is impacting projects like Spurs Stadium, fortunately or unfortunately. So verification is bridging that gap between the digital world and the physical world to be able to give you that valuable information. And just going back to the question of why do traditional methods maybe only validate five to 10% of the work that's being done? It's just the sheer quantity and scale of that task to be able to get that information is, is pretty much impossible to be able to do at the scale of those projects. You would have to either hire hundreds or maybe even thousands of people to be able to do that within a time period that makes sense for you. We were talking about high frequency capture earlier, or you stretch out the period with less people and the information that you're capturing, that validation then becomes ultimately not particularly useful information. So validation is understanding the comparison between reality and what was planned within a time period that makes sense for your project to be able to make better decisions and to be able to de-risk project delivery. That was nice and clear and I uh, enjoy the shared hatred of Tottenham. So that's also good. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what you've highlighted there is in a way it's the kind of idealized scenario. So incredibly large, complicated buildings and facilities that are being constructed that you know a, a person with a clipboard at the end of each day doesn't quite cut it uh, because these sites are so particularly complicated. Andreas, to pass the ball to you, you know, so many of the sites that we end up being brought on are places that have already been constructed to some extent. They might be being refurbished or their use of the building might be changed. These types of buildings um, may have different types of documentation. There may not be an incredibly detailed 3D BIM model available. How do we work with these types of projects? Uh, it's, that's a good question. Uh, there, I think there is no <laughs> no general answer to this because um, that's, that's one of the main problems that we have. Um, every project has its own um, consideration and, and you have some regulations, you have to deal with authorities, they, they have only small computers that can handle big data, you have only old and um, less data. That's, that's quite a problem, yeah. but, but there you can go with, with the mobile mapping system there, can capture everything what is out there and, and can starting again with planning the new building or something like this. Well, so, so in this case you're kind of using reality capture data as your as-built and then managing from, yeah. from that point in time onwards. Okay, so I guess that point of kind of what assets are needed for the benefits of modeling and verification. You know, there's also an element of specific processes or even how often individual captures need to take place. You know, Andreas, on some of the projects that you've worked on, you know, what are the time intervals for these uh, types of reality capture? Is it you know, every week? Is it once a month? How often are you and your team being pulled onto site? So the question is how um, for what you're doing this this um, mapping or, or this generation of the data is if it's only for progress control so how many um, has been built already um, is, is there a wall already built or not um, then it depends it can be weekly or monthly or something like this but for other projects we have um, for example to uh, um, control specific parameters. Um, let's say in a tunnel, in an infrastructure project, we have to check if the clearance profile is um, made as it was planned, for example, then we have to go 
and, and scan this in, um, in steps like the construction site goes. So it's the first dig out all, all the dirt out of the tunnel and then the next one is um, the first concrete layer is built. Then we scan this again, then it's the next concrete layer, for example, made. Um, we can measure the thickness, how many concrete was built, brought into this, this tunnel. So this depends also. So it could be from, from a daily base to monthly or just at the beginning and at the end of the project. Mm -hmm. I dread to think the, the volume of data <laughs> that must be collected, especially, you know, Andreas, as you mentioned there, the daily capture of information. It can be, I would imagine, a, a significant amount of data that's being captured. And I guess making sure that the, the changes that are, are highlighted correctly and the right information is extracted from um, what's being captured. So I guess... Uh, to go over to you, Stuart, uh, you know, with these projects where, you know, daily captures are taking place, how do we go about avoiding things like information silos? <laughs> so I think there are a couple of things there. And, and Andreas raised some really good points that the capture frequency is down to the job that is required. So if you need high frequency capture to measure progress, then do it that way. If it's for a one-off uh, validation, maybe of the steel structure, then just do like one big chunk of data and that's gonna do the job that you need. But to get into the information silos part, no matter how you do that, you're going to be overwhelmed by raw data. There's just terabytes of data that, that has to turn into something for it to be valuable. Raw data is not useful. It has the promise of being useful, but it's not actually valuable. So one of the things that we're doing kind of on our platform is that when we're processing that data, comparing it against the BIM, we're delivering it back as actionable information that you can then use to make decisions. So we're prioritizing what is more likely for you to want to spend your time and attention on. So we automatically rank by magnitude of deviation the elements. We can then filter that down by trade. So you can filter that down by like root model or by trade or who is going to be particularly interested in, in that subsection of the information we're producing. And then I think where it gets really interesting is then if we're really talking about silos, how do you then transmit that information out of a platform like ours and move that into the individual silos of maybe the architectural team or the, um, the engineering team or the MEP or HVAC teams? And then where it gets really exciting, I guess we'll talk about it later, is then how do you use the information from one project and then transfer that knowledge back into the design silo or into the asset management silo. It's maybe a little bit more easy to see how you do that on the asset management because you're delivering an accurate as-built at the end of the project. So it means that that information is gonna be used within that uh, post-project completion silo. But it gets really interesting when you start thinking about how you could take that data and start using that within the planning or design stage to maybe avoid some of the issues that happen within the actual manufacturing or construction process. Yeah, I guess, Andreas, that flies directly to you just to get um, your input on, you know, these type of projects. How do you go about delivering this information to your clients? Yeah, this, this is also not the perfect task at the moment. Um, there are some good cloud solutions where we can use, but they're still uh, limited by different problems. So sometimes people don't want to share data on a cloud platform, their data um, or they're quite scary about this. So 
other people they, they can only handle classical PDF files or something like this. So there is still a lot of projects which are done by very low um, data exchange, so like PDF or single drawings or something like this. So that's a problem that we, we, we have also a lot of proprietary formats. Um, these, these are a problem by exchanging data, so we need more standards there, I think. Um, and then Building Smart is, is doing there a good job, but um, there is still a lot of a lot of way to go. Yeah, so I guess in a way it's making sure everyone's speaking a, a common language, everything's going into at least adjacent platforms, not siloed platforms, and the methods and the way that this information is shared is at least understood by all. We're talking about different organizations having a different understanding of the types of information to be shared, so whether it is 2D, 3D, point clouds, asset information. Andreas also raised this point around the, the type of tools to be used, whether they can use cloud or they're really old school and they're asking for a floppy disk. I'm not quite sure. But Stuart, I think your point, you also touched on different disciplines. So the HVAC team compared to the architectural team, how do we make sure that reality capture compared to the BIM model, the actual key bits of information that are important to those different disciplines are shared with them in a way that they can understand. Got it. I think that from our point of view, the most important thing is to understand how your client and the stakeholders are communicating internally. How are they building this project? And I think there's, at least from outside the industry, I think there's this kind of idea that people in construction are uh, a little bit stupid and they're outdated and the industry's using old processes and they don't really know what they're doing. And I think that's very unfair because I think that we've developed tools and processes within the industry for reasons because of the way that um, the incentive structures work, because of the way supply chains work, all these kind of complex factors that come together and no one will know how to manage a project better than the people that are actually doing it themselves. So from our point of view, it's incumbent upon us to inject information or insight back into the existing workflows that they have in a format that they can ingest to be able to facilitate or empower the people that are already working there. So I'll give an example of that. Let's say we're on a project and we highlight that there's a structural beam that potentially has a problem. I've got the, I've got the BIM on one side so I can see it. I can visualize the deviation using a heat map, so very quick and simple. And then I've got an image so that I can visualize where that is on site. But we also produce then a 2D section drawing that highlights where on that beam you have the issue. So it shows clear, black and white. This is the BIM, this is how big it's supposed to be, and this is the reality, and it's smaller than it's supposed to be. So instead of saying, no, you guys need to work in 3D, you don't understand, the future is 3D and BIM and 4D. No, let's say, what is the best way to communicate a complex idea? In this case, it's a 2D drawing, it's the standard within the industry, we'll automate for you the process of generating that 2D drawing. You can slap that into a PDF, push that into an email, complain, <laughs> complain to the right person and move that information within the organization to get the job done. So you're saving people time, you're saving people energy, and you're getting more work done for the same amount of effort that's going in. In fact, you're getting more work done for the same amount of work that's going in. But respecting 
how our users want to be communicated with and how they want to communicate with others, I think is key to making these kinds of solutions successful within within the space. Great, and maybe to push that back to you then, Andreas. So from your side of working in some of these projects, do you feel that being a laser scanning professional, it is part of your, uh, I guess, responsibility to distill some of this information down so that it is understood by the person on site? Or do you see the role of the laser scanning professional simply about the reality capture? Mm, no, not, not simply by the reality capture, but, but I think to get back to Stuart's point, so to visualize um, the problems or to visualize the, the um, ongoing process on, on the construction side is, is quite important. Um, we have so many disciplines and they're all specialized and, and the buildings are getting bigger and more complex and very often I think different people um, from different disciplines, they don't understand each other because they're talking about different things and if, if they, they see it in a 3D model or they, they see a representation, a laser scan which is made um, every week or, and as you said for the beam where you can visualize with a heat map where the problems are and something like this, you can talk on the same model, you, you see a visual representation of, of the construction site and um, you can tag there, you can put their information on the right structure where, where it is. Um, I think this helps to understand the people um, talking to each other and I think we can deliver all this data for it, we can um, bundle this data, we can bring it together in the same reference system. So I think this is also an important part. Uh, a lot of companies out there, reality capture companies, they, they bought a laser scanner and say, okay, I can scan. And that's, that's correct. Everybody can capture with um, low budget systems, but I think you always need a surveyor who is um, looking after it, that it's in the right um, coordinate system. There are quite a, quite obstacles where a lot of failures you can take and, and the surveyor learn this in school, we have a history of 100 years how to handle different coordinate systems and so on and I think this is quite an important part. But still, it helps us when, when more data is captured, it's, it's um, a benefit for the coal construction company, construction industry and, and this will bring us forward. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's an important thing there, Andreas, like what's, what will bring us forwards? Where do you think the industry, particularly around the laser scanning professional, is headed? So how can technology either you know, enable more construction verification to be done? Or as we're, we're talking around now, how can technology make the delivery and packaging of information uh, even better than before. So, you know, some of the things we have touched on, but what are the, the current challenges that you face that you would like technology to, to solve? I think most most data we capture are still um, made manually. There's a man outside out there and, and taking a laser scanner from one place to another or carrying a mobile mapping system with him. And I think we need more automation on this process. So I think everybody saw this, this little Boston Dynamics robot. Um, there was a, a laser scanner, or every laser scanner I know, uh, there is a picture of it on, on this dock, is <laughs> running around um, in the night, for example, during the construction site and capturing everything. Or with drones, you can fly through tunnels in the night where, where no trains are passing there. And so 
we have the more automation in, in the um, acquisition and also more automation in the uh, analyzing or processing the data. So um, because of the, the shortage of um, skilled um, workers, we, we, we need more automation with the little limited number of skilled people we have to um, they have to just to survey uh, to look after the project what what the computer is doing what the algorithms are running there in the right direction and um, I think this is where I hope that technology can um, under, um, support our processes mm -hmm. and um, the main task I think so that unfortunately, as much as we all enjoyed field work uh, when we were at university, yeah, this, the laser scanning professional is going more and more in the office and working on uh, data that is ideally autonomously collected in the field. And we are the kind yeah. of quality assurance that the data is of good standard and ideally in the right location. Uh, we have also a lot of projects for the railroad or, or for, for the um, roads where you can't, um, you have to go to the site, you, you have to um, stop the trains to get into um, the rail system and, and there, there is no time for that anymore. There is, um, if you can do it with, with a mobile mapping system, for example, and, and can all take out all the information um, in the office, it's, it's quite much easier and much, much better than before. Uh, and then Stuart, to you on the, the kind of future gazing type questions. So, you know, right now is are other tasks that you come up against that I guess feel difficult or impossible that, you know, you hope in the near future uh, can be solved by technology? Hmm. Interesting question. I think I'm a little bit biased by the section of the industry that we're working in. So I, I kind of maybe keep it narrowed down to that. But I think one of the big, the big problems that we have within the industry and is going to become an increasingly large problem is the lack of skilled labor within the industry. It is very difficult to hire a BIM manager now. They're a, they're a scarce commodity. So people with this knowledge of how to interpret information and, and work in the digital world, as well as people working on site, we are running out of skilled experienced labor within the industry. And the people that are running projects today with 20, 30 years of experience are not going to be around forever. If you've, let's say you want to build a new airport, there's only a handful of people that have actually run those projects in the past that really know how to move that forward. And projects right now are based on the experience of a very small group of, of people to bring them to success. And I think if you start looking at projects essentially as an aggregation of millions and millions of decisions, and we kind of discussed earlier, the better information you have to make better decisions, the better the project will be. A project is millions of decisions and it's generating huge quantities of data, whether it be point cloud data, model data, text, huge quantities of information in time and space. And we're, we're really not tapping into any of that because when a project dies, when it finishes, you don't transfer that to the next project. That information disperses, those teams disperse. So you're putting a huge amount of time and energy into that one project, 
with very little benefit moving to the next. You're not capturing knowledge and you're not capturing experience to be able to move on to the next project and the next project. So I think what will be really exciting, and you're starting to see hints of that from us and from other people, um, where you start moving it on from being, let's say, a classification problem or a, um, even a, a model validation problem to a knowledge management problem. If you can start to take that knowledge from one project and then proactively deliver it to the next project and the next project and the next project and capture that experience, then that's the point where I think it starts to get really exciting because you're producing all that knowledge on a project today. So if you can capture that in a bubble, in a, in a bottle, and move that to the next project and the next project and the next project, I think there's a huge opportunity there to start refining processes. And then we spoke earlier about silos. When you can start taking the knowledge from one, two, three, ten 10 projects and start pulling that back into the design stage or the ideation stage, you can start saying, look, we've done 10 projects and we had problems with this piece of installation every single time. Why don't we design it differently? Why don't we get rid of that problem in the design phase instead of a more costly phase, which is the actual production point? But we're not learning those lessons. So I think the really exciting portion of the future, and there's something that we're working on and we're very excited about, is taking that information and moving it into other silos to take benefit of that data and that information, that knowledge, after the project has been delivered. That's what gets me really excited anyway. Great, and uh, hopefully there's a couple of young people or maybe even students listening in. They at least kind of know what type of roles uh, we're definitely looking for within the industry. Thank you, Stuart and Andreas, for catching up with me today. It's been great to hear both of your thoughts on construction, construction verification, and some of the challenges that you've both faced in the real world, and also the the direction of travel. Where is this um, particular part of the industry going to be in the next couple of years? Where can our listeners go to find out a little bit more about yourselves or your work? Andreas, are you on LinkedIn? Is there anywhere else our listeners can go to find out more about you? Yeah, there's the LinkedIn page and probably our company's page, so it's angamaiingenieure.de. But best way is to find me on LinkedIn and write me a message. Great. And yes, thank you again, Andreas, for protecting me from having to pronounce your company name in in German. Uh, And uh, Stuart, (laughs) over to you. Where can people go to find out more? So I'm quite easy to find on LinkedIn. And you can also find us at nasca.ai, so N-A-S-K-A dot A-I. And you can shoot us an email. And yeah, more than happy to talk to people on similar topics. Cheers. Thanks to everyone who tuned in. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please do subscribe to the series and share this episode. We'll see you next time and we'll be talking about collaboration. And don't forget to check out our full resources using the link in our show notes.